So we'll get started. I'll, uh, I'll preface a little bit that uh, you can see why um, both these faithful uh, theologians and teachers and commentaries and exegeters of scripture have just found themselves uh, um, easily just swept away by this this book. Um, and as we've talked over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that I've continued to have reinforced in my own thinking and studying and efforts to learn and to teach is um, kind of this big fancy word that we always we might hear about called the hermeneutic that you use and um, it, it takes on many many forms uh, I think one of the most common hermeneutic that is out there is what is the Bible say to you <laughs> as if it were different for everybody that reads it okay so and I, I think we're all uh, we've all experienced that we we I wouldn't want to use the word guilty of that because I think it's part of the learning process but I want to give you a thought that has really helped me um, with the study of scriptures who inspired every hand that penned every word of every book that has been captured and preserved by God in the scriptures? Who is the inspiration behind that? God, the Holy Spirit. Okay. If, if that is in fact true, and it is, and we in fact believe that and we should, do you think that the Holy Spirit had as many different meanings of a text as there were people reading it? Now think about that question. Well, what would that immediately do to our Bible? I'm sorry? It would, wonderful way to put it, be another Babylon, right? Tina and I can confess sadly that we, we have heard from the pulpits. Read your Bible. Figure out what it means to you. How dangerous is that? Do you, do you know that Adolf Hitler, if you were to have him turn his belt buckle over, do you know what was on the back of his belt buckle? In God I trust. His God was a God, but it was not the God of the Bible. Right? Um, why, why do I say that? The, the hermeneutic that you use is important. And a, a literal grammatical 
contextual hermeneutic is very, very important. And I think we're going to see that this morning a bit because I am stuck between Romans 1 and Romans 2. I really am. Um, and, I, and I think I'm, I've read and reread and restudied and read very widely, you know, men from over the last, I think it goes all the way back uh, almost 700 years, particularly on this, this book. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a slight divergence of views as to the, the Romans 1, 18 through 32 and who that's describing. And then Romans 2, 1 through, good morning, Romans 2, 1, all the way to Romans 3, 20. And that, that is the division that we're working our way through. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, quite honestly. I would love to just engage us in some dialogue about that. And I had mentioned last week that when you really take in the full context of this book that Paul wrote, you begin to get the sense that there was a problem in the church. And you do that when you get out to Romans 13, 14, 15, and 16, where Paul gets very specific and very instructive about how the church should be right and there's some sections in there that just frankly haunted me i had six hours in the car yesterday going to move my daughter out of her dorm and and this just kept uh so when i got home last uh, yesterday after going visiting with some friends i i told tina i have to go down and kind of work this thing out a little bit um but I want to emphasize this importance of a, uh, an effort on our part as we study our scriptures to, 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 to take a literal understanding of the text. And we've got to be careful with that because some of the text is actually allegorical. Um, uh, but there's a, a literal understanding because there's one author. That was my point. He has one expressed meaning. That's the point. Um, and some of that's a mystery and some of that's hard. Peter helps us with Paul. Paul's writings were hard. Peter says it flat out. We should understand that's going to be even harder for us, right? Um, but I, I think the reason it's harder for us, as I thought about this, and I'm working this out in front of all my brothers and sisters here, um, I don't think we can fully appreciate the context of the society in which Paul was living in. I want that to fall on you. And I want you to mark those words. I don't think we can fully appreciate the context of the society in which Paul was living in because of the context of our Let me say it this way, because of the context of the last 40 or 50 years of living in a nation that has been insulated around a Christian nation steeped in morality, 
but how much of it is true Christianity? Because when we look at a society like Romans 1, 18 through 32, we just kind of go, oh my word, don't we? How horrific of a society was that? And then if we're aware of what's going on in our society today, we go, oh my Lord, we're headed right into that society. So we're kind of, here's what hit me, and I'm just sharing this with you as you study this book with me. We're kind of sitting in some bookends of humanity. And we're going to see this morning that the society Paul lived in was absolutely steeped in the perversions that we read about in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And I'm going to show you some things this morning that take that even a step farther. And I think the implication and then the application, which is always the end of our Bible study, right, is to understand what the scriptures meant. What are the implications of that? And what is the application to my life? And quite frankly, it's... it's uh, I think it should grab all of us a little bit, okay? And I think you'll see that this morning. So with that, I'm going to pray for us. And just, uh, Father, we, um, we do come to you, and you know that uh, there is an intensity about this book about this society from which we're learning from. And it is so much because it is the very society that we find ourselves in today as this Christian church. And Father, I was struck even on the drive down this morning, the blessed instructions our Lord gave us our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom comes. Thy will be done on this earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, may we plumb the depths of this blessed prayer you've given us to exalt our triune God, to look to the kingdom that comes, and to do that with reverence and humility in a world that is ever increasingly being given over to its very own desires of a heart that is desperately wicked. And so we just lift up this time. I pray for each and every one of us as we think through these passages. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just illumine our minds and guard our hearts and that we would do this all to your glory and to your praise in your precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, 
let me just kind of work through this a little bit with you, um, and we'll see how far we get. But I have to kind of back up and, and provide some narrative. Romans 1, 18 through 32 really walks us through one of the most comprehensive understandings of society that we will ever find. But much more importantly, it gives us an understanding of how that society gets to that point. And many that are first introduced to this book, maybe as new believers or so many believers in so many churches where that section of scripture is simply never taught, we find it absolutely shocking to look at who is the active one producing that society and how is he producing it? Because the active one is God and God gave them over. So there's shock number two. All God has to do to a society of unregenerate people godless people is simply give them over to the desires of their desperately wicked heart and Romans 1 18 through 32 is what you get and it is what we have and it is encroaching and increasing in ways that are head spinning head spinning Did, okay so a little detour did anybody read the article about what the university system in North Carolina is now doing did, did anybody, can you find us dark for the rest of the group? They are literally doing gender treatment, which means blockers, poisons that are used to castrate a serial rapist to who, Rick? Two-year-olds. The University of North Carolina Chapel Hill has one of them. Vanderbilt. Right? You see what I'm saying? This is a level that makes me shake. We are at the bottom of Romans 1. Okay? Very intense. But then there's a transition in, in Romans 2. And of course, in Paul's mind, this is one continuous flow. And what I want to introduce you to the realization is there's a constituency addressed in Romans 1, 18 through 32, which is the absolute godless, unrighteous, wicked society. Romans 2, I would offer 1 through 16, as you go back and read it, addresses those that are superior to all of those Romans 1 people. whether Jew or Greek. And then Romans 2.17 through Romans 3.9, Paul directly addresses the Jew. And remember the composition we have in this Roman church. Mature Jews and pagans, former pagans, right? You have mature Christians who are both Jew and Gentile, and then you have weak believers coming right out of these societies, right into the church. So you have all of that, and Paul is explicit about that in, in this book as you get into the latter section of the book. 
So let me kind of help you understand why, and I'll say it this way, why after studying a whole bunch of perspectives on this, that that, that delineation of four different types is appropriate because the last one from Romans 3, 9 through Romans 3, 20, Paul goes from Romans 1 to the perverse humanity, godless perverse humanity, to Romans 2, 1 through 16, to those who look down upon that society as if they were superior in some way, and then to the Jew, and then the final constituency, he comes right back to his final statement in Romans 3, 19, where he says, and you ought to shut your mouth. All of you. The whole world is accountable to God. No one is righteous. So he takes it right back up to humanity as a whole. But he works his way through those very carefully. And then he's going to unpack that all the way throughout this wonderful book. Which makes this book, for someone who loves to just get lost in the scriptures, an absolute treasure trove, right? But with that thought in mind, look at Romans 2, 9 through 10. This is how you can understand who's he addressing in Romans 2, 1 through 16. Romans 2, 9 through 10 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being. There's part of the clue. Who does evil? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. See? There it is right there. He just pulled everybody in. Because that's the world in, in this day and age. Right? And then he goes... Uh, verse 10 on the other side but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek because God's not a God of partiality he's right he's not gonna there's not favor here to the Jew and to the Greek but look at with me from Romans 2 17 so now we're getting into this next section to the Jew Romans 2.17 says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So he's peeling right into the Jewish community right there in that section. This is my point. And then in Romans 3.9 through 3.20, if you look at Romans 3.19 and 20, read with me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every keyword there mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That has been a very important passage for me personally as I witness to religious unbelievers who stand on a moral ground and the basic philosophy that I'm going to be okay with God because I'm a pretty good person and I am nothing like those Romans 1.18 people. That is a recipe for when the spirit left and the house was swept clean, says the Lord. What comes back? Seven more spirits, much worse that, dear brothers and sisters, is from the mouth of our Lord that says moral reform. Or let me say it, sitting in church and having faithful doctrine, faithful gospel, 
presented to you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as an unbeliever who's holding to their own righteousness is the single most dangerous place for us to be. Because your condemnation will be far greater. And Paul makes that explicit. John makes that explicit. Jesus made that explicit, right? Paul's making it clear in here that moral reform does you nothing with this passage. Verse 20, and here it comes. And bear in mind, let's just take the two most significant and substantial religions of our day. Roman Catholicism, 1.2 to 3 billion people, including most of my entire family and me before I was saved. And Islam, another 1.4 and growing rapidly. What is the very base of their religion? Works. Works. How can you not see the danger of that when you read a passage like what I'm about to read? And I'll stir us up. How can we not take these truths to these precious people who are using their religion to condemn themselves even more? Paul couldn't. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you want to know why we have a world that is spiraling into every form of addiction and abuse? What does the guilt of sin do to us? David told us precisely, didn't he? Psalm 51. My body was wasting away. I was physically sick. I couldn't even bear to go into public because I knew I was the emperor with no clothes, literally. I certainly couldn't go into worship. I had no desire to go into worship until he had repented of and confessed. And then he couldn't get wait to get back into the community of the saints. That's what sin does even for a man after God's own heart. What is it doing to a world who has no God? This is kind of what just mowed me over this week. And it's going to get a little heavier, so, um, so bear with me. I think it's safe to say from everything we've talked about that the, the first section of Romans does not really need any form of identification. We read it and we know exactly who it is. This is the godless, perverse society of humanity. And as Solomon so rightly says, and I didn't realize till I did the word search that um, <laughs> 29 different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. He says it over and over because there isn't, right? However, this is what I want you to grab hold of. Another rung 
in this discussion. All who read this book, who read this book, who had been taught this book, particularly at the time Paul wrote it, would know that this section describes the entirety of the humanity and especially the Greco-Roman society. Because it was rampant. It was the norm of society. The perversions of Romans 1, 18 through 32. Now, the word implication ought to rapidly come to your mind. Do you see where our society is rapidly heading back to? We have had a blessing from God for a long time in this nation. We live in a nation where the average Bibles per household is 3.5. We have devices that I can do a word search through the whole Bible in a nanosecond and see every passage that has any word in it and study that till the cows come home. We have no excuse, as Paul says in Romans 1. And yet we are careening to a society precisely like Romans 1. Here's what I want you to understand, though, because here becomes the implication and application for the church. All who read would have known that this precisely describes just the horrendous humanity, particularly of the decadent Greco-Roman society, from which this church in Rome has been formed out of. Remember all the discussions we had about Romans 1 and how often the old man was right here with sin? This is these people. And many of its congregation would have come straight out of this depraved society as active participants in that society because it was the norm. Now, why am I dragging us through this in such an intense way? Go with me to Romans 13 with your finger there in Romans 2. And look at Romans 13, 12 again with me through 14. And remember, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Paul is literally writing to this congregation of people with this. This is for them. And this is what kind of just launched my mind into the study we're about to look at. Paul says, Romans 13, 12, and you've got to put Romans 13 in the context of Romans 12 all the way to the end, because what that whole section it does, as he turns from the theology of Romans 1 through 11, he goes to the application for the church from Romans 12 to the end. And of course, we know that Romans 13 is stuck right in the middle of that, where he is teaching the church about how we should handle leaders, corrupt as they might be, how we should handle one another, how we should handle lending, how we should handle the law, 
the weaker brother. It's all about how we function as a body of Christ in Rome, in the midst of a perverse society, a perverse leadership, and a congregation of people who just came out of, pardon me, orgies, horrendous sexual immorality, horrendous behavior of every kind. And now, they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, last week, they were involved in the most perverse behavior you could imagine. And many of these people, I'm sure, looked down the however they were sitting and saying, seriously? Is that unreasonable to think? I don't think it is. And I think that's kind of what just grabbed hold of my soul. Is it unreasonable to think that these very mature, very self-righteous Jews and Gentiles in this church who are being sanctified out of that are looking down and saying, wait a minute, I just saw that person last week walking into that place. Look how they're dressed. Look at the family they came from. What are we doing here? These people are monsters you get my point verse 12 of Romans 13 we'll let Paul speak the night is far gone the day is at hand invoking all kinds of language that is just pointing to the day of the Lord 2,000 years ago so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is he saying? This is where you got to really slow down. What is he saying and who is he saying it to? He's saying it to the church in Rome, isn't he? What is he saying? You have come to faith in Christ. There is a new man inside of you and there is a spirit of God inside of you and yet the old man is right there and we're now going to begin the process of sanctifying setting apart killing off that old man and it's going to take the rest of your life And I think you're going to see from a litany of passages we're about to read that this is a norm in the church of the apostolic era. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Look at the prohibitions, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealously, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Does that sound like something that is remotely not even worth mentioning to this group of people? That sounds like it's right in the very wheelhouse of their behaviors, doesn't it? 
So when that thought occurred to me, uh, you, that's when you go search the scriptures and say, am I just off on a thin branch here? Boy, that's where I got to last night when I excused myself from my family. Let me share this from Stifler 400 years ago of missionaries that had gone off to India in various places 400 years ago. He says in his commentary around this section, in depicting the sin of the Gentiles in the first chapter, Paul did not name him. It was not necessary. The picture was so true to life that no one could fail to see who sat for it. It was, that was the society that these people were both immersed in and saved out of, and many of them brought the hangover, for lack of a better term, of that lifestyle right into the church. What, let's just be honest, wouldn't we look at that and say, what a colossal mess we've got here? What was Paul constantly being accused of? Your grace is a license for people to sin. Just look at the people who are in your so-called church. Paul makes that very common. He has these being accused of that in Romans chapter 2. <laughs> Stifler says, the author has been assured, being Stifler, and more than once by returned missionaries from both China and India, that when the first chapter of Romans 1 was read to what he calls intelligent natives, of these heathen lands, they have hesitated to believe that it was from the missionary's sacred book. Suspecting that the missionary had written it himself as a description of what he had seen in their very society. Meaning, 400 years ago in China and India, the book of Romans 1, 18 through 32, so precisely described their society that they thought these guys wrote it after they observed these societies. We're headed back to that society, folks. And I think the context, the historical context of these books are going to become extremely important if, in fact, we are going to evangelize into that society properly and understand the difference between a brand new baby Christian that has just come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and separate them from a mature Christian who's been being sanctified by the Holy Spirit for 10 or 15 or 20 years. We're much more inclined to be comfortable bringing that sanctified saint into our church than we would a prostitute or a homosexual who has come to a crisis of life through the work of the Holy Spirit, who has come to hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. See what I'm saying? We're headed there. There's a reason the Southern Baptist churches are shrinking the average pastor age is 65 the average congregation is 19 people there are no young people 
And the only conversions to baptism are generally people under the age of seven. We don't know how to evangelize this society or God has just decided he's not going to save anybody anymore. Have we somehow adopted a certain level of sanctification before you can ever dawn the door of our church? That's not what you see here. It's not what you're, gonna, you're about to see, right? I know. Just sharing the intensity with you all. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 with me. We're going to skip through a few passages here. I'm going to read these pretty rapid fire, which will be fairly difficult for me to do and for you to hear. But 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. In the context of the composition of people and the instruction being given to these churches and the kinds of issues that Paul is addressing in these churches. 1 Corinthians 5, 19 through 13 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world. You see where he's going? He's saying, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about those, Jan, in the church. You see my point? or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He's talking about people who bear the name of brother, believer, who are conducting themselves in these ways within the church or within some religious setting. Since then, sorry, who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one for what I have to do with judging outsiders. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You see it? It's kind of like black and white, isn't it? But I think how we understand that and how we apply this is intensely important. Are we going to be at risk of taking brand new baby believers and chasing them away just as fast as they desired to come? Because their level of social behavior was just not at the appropriate level yet. As if to say, come back in a couple years when you're, you know, you know what I mean? Right? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right? And what is he saying is bring the gospel. This book of Romans is the entirety of the gospel. Bring the gospel. Help them understand what God has done to them through this precious faith they've been given. And what he's now about to begin with them, which is the process of sanctification, the putting off of that perverted old man and the putting on of this wonderful new man that will continue for the rest of your life. And you will see the fruit of that over time. 
That's exactly, if you think about this book of Romans, what Paul teaches. Okay? Romans, or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Next chapter. Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you'll notice how Paul invokes the kingdom of God as one of the main reasons for the sanctifying life and work of the Holy Spirit. Because the kingdom of God was a powerful force in Paul's evangelization and Paul's sanctification. Because that is the place where all of the unrighteousness and lawlessness that we're going to continue to see growing is going to be completely reversed. And he's, his evangelism is constantly pointing to them to that day. Constantly. How often in our gospel presentations are we talking about the kingdom? And how much can we inform that kingdom conversation with biblical truths? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. You see how he's using the kingdom of God? Verse 11, here it comes. And such were some of you. And we know, right? no matter how far along we are in our walk with the Lord, that that old man just comes out of nowhere and he just gets right in our face, doesn't he? Right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. He's teaching what has happened to you at that Corinthian church that we look down upon so often. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. You see the instruction there? Ugh. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. This is why the sexual immorality and the perversions of it are so serious. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now there is an instruction for the stewardship of your body and how you care for it. In every way. First Corinthians 10, 8 through 11. We must not indulge in sex, sexual immorality as some of them did. Why would the instructions for this be so constant? You see what I'm saying? If it weren't absolutely an essential part of the sanctifying work of this apostolic church that needed to take place. It's constant. And up to this point, you think, well, yeah, but that was just that Corinthian church, right? Because that's where I was at this point in my study. And 23,000 fell in a single day, drawing back to the Old Testament. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, 
and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumbled as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom, here comes that kingdom message again, the end of the age has come, invoking that kingdom So, now we're going to go over to the church in Galatia. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I think that kind of covers it, doesn't it? Do you see the range of behaviors in there? Orgies right along with deceptiveness, lying. Why? Because they are all sin to God. Right? Those secret sins we've put on the scale, they are all sins, and every one of them was either laid on the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross or you will pay for it, and I will pay for it through eternity. Every one of them, little and big, lie to orgy in this spectrum. So what does he say? I warn you, Church of Galatia, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Here it comes again. But sexual immorality and all the impurity or covetousness. Covetousness, right? That's the layup of the Ten Commandments. Just don't want what you don't have. See if you can get by that one this day. And he puts them right there together, right? There's more than just no partiality with God when it comes to human beings, right? There's there's no partiality when it comes to sin. Sin is sin to God. And as we begin to understand that, we begin to work our way closer to the holiness of God and Christ who never sinned. Covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolishness talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is here comes again, who is sexually immoral, impure, covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Same message to the church. Colossians 3, 1 through 8. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Colossians 3, 1 through 8. Beautiful first four passages. Well worth memorizing. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not in things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, there's that second coming. And it looks in Paul's mind to be pretty literal, doesn't it? Then you also will appear with him in glory. And here comes the instruction for the church in Colossae. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. <laughs> you see what the assumption is here? We're struggling with sin just the same way they were struggling with sin. And those sins are often a reflection of the society we've come out of. And they're very much a reflection of the society we're headed into. Right? Why do you think this society hates the church so much? There's lots of reasons. How much of it is because of us and the fact that we look a lot more like the Romans 2, 1 through 16 folks. What about you, old man, who judges when you were once one of them? That is the epitome of hypocrisy. And I, I know I'm guilty, and I know it shakes me to the core when I read these passages. Right? Verse 5, put, on, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. There it is. When you were living in them, but now, look at the instruction again, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, Slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Last one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see the call towards more and more sanctification? He commends them and says, keep going. Don't get complacent in your pursuit of holiness. That's a word for all of us right there. And here it comes. This, this is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying you're not one of them anymore. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Yeah. That really ought to hit every one of us. Because this is not, this is not instruction for those other people. This is instruction for us. 
And if it's not instruction for us, we have reached a level of holiness that we ought to be quite concerned about. Right? So let me return to Romans 2.1, where your finger may still be. And let me just close out with this. Romans 2.1, therefore, you have no excuse, old man. Every one of you who judges. And when we find ourselves on that continuum is because we don't understand that God does not use a scale when it comes to sin. If there was only one human being who committed one tiny little sin, it still would have taken the very blood and body of Jesus Christ dying on that cross to justify that one person for that one sin. Wouldn't it? Or he is a partial God. So Paul says, as we come out of that Romans 1 passage to this church in Rome, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He like catches them right in mid-thought, mid doesn't he? Who just read Romans 1, just imagine this church, these people reading this letter for the first time, and they're thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like those people. And he just catches them in mid-thought and convicts them. That's the beautiful work that we do right alongside of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word of God, right there, right? Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. There's a fearful passage. Guilty, Lord. <laughs> because you, the judge, practice the very same things in some form of that continuum. The sexual immorality, right? When the eyes get away from you, right? Or the thoughts get away from you. There it is, right? God sees that whole continuum, and yet he's constant through Paul saying, but you have been saved from that and its consequence. You have been and are being sanctified out of that. But it's going to take a lot. And it's going to take the entire community of the church coming alongside of each other, counseling one another, discipling one another. The brother who's come out of drug addiction with the brother who's lived the, the life with the Christian parents and the Lord graciously saved them, right? That's the beauty of the church that Paul's presenting here. Let me just close with James Montgomery's voice on this section. I think Paul first introduces those, both Jew and Gentile, who consider themselves above others and then midway through the chapter, those in the case of the Jews particularly, who were much more inclined to this because they came out of a system that is justified by what? The works, the law, right? So they are much more inclined in the flesh to do this. So he peels into them as well. But is not the, the sanctimonious pagan just as bad? The holier than thou who maybe even believes in no God but has put himself on such a pedestal? We... Right? So he's, 
he's talking about them first, and then he turns to the Jew who rely on their religious advantages. And he goes on to say, let me say, however, that in a sense, it does not matter much. If Paul is thinking of Jews in verse 1 through 16, he is at least thinking of them in regard to their moral superior attitude from which we are not exempt, though we be the Gentiles. And if he is thinking of Gentiles, and he is at least embracing the Jews at that same point at which they might indulge in similar wrong thinking. Which is precisely why Paul ends this section. That every mouth should be shut. And when every mouth is shut, what section of theology does he turn to? Justification by faith. And he will spend the next four chapters unpacking that for us. And then he goes to sanctification and the battle with sin and the old man and the body of death. And then he goes to the work of the Holy 